Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. All right, everybody. Well, welcome back to the Servants of Grace podcast. My name is Dave and I'm the host for this show, and today we're going to continue our series through the book of Psalms, looking today at Psalm 24. Would you please join me now in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is true, and that it is binding on our lives, and that it tells us not only about how life was made, but that you made it, and that you you instruct us from your word about the meaning and the purpose of our very lives. And you, you even instruct us, Lord, about the end of times and everywhere in between. So, Lord, I pray as we open your word from Psalm 24, as we look at this passage, that, that we would be instructed, that you would Open our eyes to see the great and the wonderful things that you have to teach us and to instruct us, that, and that that would help us in the midst of the challenges and the difficulties of our lives, that we would see that our king is on his throne and that you are, you are reigning and that you are from everlasting to everlasting. You are the Alpha and the Omega, you are the Prince of Peace, you are the King of Kings, and the Lord of all lords. So Lord, help us as we open this great text now to teach us, Lord, from your word. Help us to be fed from your word. Help us to to grow in the knowledge of your Son from your word. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen and amen. Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, which you should, uh, please open it to Psalm 24. Psalm 24. And hear what God's Word has to say to us today. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors that the King of glory may come. And who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who, Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. This is the reading of God's precious word. The question that this psalm asks before us, Psalm 24, that I just read, 
It asked, the question that this psalm asks is one of the most important questions that, that we could ever ask. What does God require of me? If God exists and he does and heaven is real and it is, what do I need to do to get there? Now, this is a question that every single person must answer. The danger with the really big questions of life is that we really rarely stop to consider them and to answer their question, answer the questions that they raise and to wrestle with the answers to the question. We can live our lives at 100,000 miles an hour without ever stopping to ask ourselves, where are we heading? What's, what's really the focus of my life? What is the object of my worship? And with Psalm 24, what we're going to find is that this psalm, it stops us dead in our tracks. It's going to cause us to stop and think about the ultimate issues of life and what God really expects of us. No other question, no more concern is more important to consider than where we will spend eternity. Now, Psalm 24, I'm making clear, it challenges us. But we're also going to find that Psalm 24 gives us hope. God knows how he made us. He knows our frame. He knows the length of our days. He knows that we're dust. And he meets us in our need. And so along with an ultimate question, we're going to be talking about an ultimate hope, a hope that everyone can experience. God has a right to ask what he wants of you and me because he made us. And since he made us, he owns us. Psalm 24, 1 through 2 says, The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. God owns everything and everything in it. He created the continents, the seas. He invented the plate tectonics. You and I, we belong to God. And this is where we need to start in order to live in God's world rightly and before his face. We are living in a time when even those sentences that I uttered are under attack. Because there's people that don't believe that God orders all history. That everything is just moving willy-nilly. And by happenstance, just flick a quarter up in the air and slap it down on your hand. And you're more likely, according to this view that is so common in our world today, to find out something in some direction to your life. But what that does, that view does, is it makes life all about me. There is no chance and there is no luck in life. There's no flipping the quarter and slapping it down on, on the back of your hand. And somehow you've come to some sort of decision. No, God's word is our true north. It tells us the way in which we are to go because God has given us his word to be a light unto our path, to show us the way in which we are 
to go and to live in his world. And we can see this illustrated in the way the apostle Paul uses this very verse. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing to help the church with controversy over eating meat sacrificed to idols. In their time, in those times, much of the meat sold in the markets was slaughtered in pagan temples. Imagine if most of the meat at your local grocery store had not been slaughtered on a farm or in a slaughterhouse, and when you bought it, you knew it had been butchered as part of a pagan occult ritual in a temple. What should you do? Should you eat? Should a Christian eat food that's been offered to an idol? What should he do if you were not sure where the meat came from? Paul says not to participate in a sacrifice to an idol, and he gives instruction. In 1 Corinthians 10, 25-26, eat whatever is sold in the market in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Now, what is Paul saying here in 1 Corinthians 10? If you don't know where where that 10-ounce filet came from, go ahead and enjoy it. Why? Verse 26, the earth is the Lord's. This meat may have been offered to a demon and sacrificed, but God owns it. He created it. It all belongs to him. The principle is that we do not need to reject things in this world simply because they've been misused. God created the world, and it is good. By extension, some of us think, perhaps, that God has no claim on our lives. And worse yet, you think, perhaps, that he couldn't wait any longer. You might have given yourself over to some vice or or alcohol or sexual sin or promiscuity and on and on and on. And you might think, God doesn't want you anymore. He's not interested in me. I've done everything I can so that God will not be interested in me. You might think, I've gone too far, and so God doesn't want me back. Or maybe you've turned away from God and said, this is my life. I'm going to do what I want. Or maybe you think, you know what? Enough with it. Enough of the suffering. Enough of the injustice. Enough of the hurt. Enough of the pain. This God cannot be good that you're describing. Here's the thing. No matter what you think and no matter where you are today, listening to this or watching it, God made you in his image and there's nothing, there's nothing that you can do or ever will do that will ever change that fact. God made you, he created you, and he cares about you. So again, our question before us, if this text is going to drill us down on, is what does my loving creator expect from me? How do I need to live to please him so that I can live with him in heaven? And David asked this very question in Psalm 24, verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? In other words, who can come before God? What kind of men and women will the Lord admit into his presence in heaven? In Isaiah 6, we, we see that the Isaiah is commissioned as a prophet before the Lord. And the Lord does work on Isaiah at this time. And 
he recognizes that he, that the Lord is holy and he is a man of unclean lips. That is the right posture for us as well. God is a holy God. You look at how many times God is described in the Bible as holy. He's absolutely pure. Those who come into his very presence must be pure and holy. The scripture says in Deuteronomy 4, 24, the Lord your God is a consuming fire. And so those who come into the presence of God must be holy for their own protection. We must be clean and pure to come before him or his holiness will consume us in our sin. And this is true. Why do you think that there were so many rituals and ceremonies in the Old Testament? It was because God demanded absolute perfection. Now we know we fast forward significantly to towards the back of the towards the back of the New Testament and flip to the book of Hebrews. And there we discover in this book that's all about the sufficiency of Christ that we have a once and for all sacrifice that Christ alone is enough and that he always will be. And even, even, in, even in Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4, the writer very clearly instructs us that we have a high priest who understands us in every way. Because he's unlike us. He can sympathize with us in our pain, in our agony, and yet he never sinned. David describes the sort of person who can come before God in Psalm 24, 4, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. We might read that and we might think, ah, eh, that doesn't make me uncomfortable in the least. But it should. Those who come before God must have clean hands. This talks about our actions. We cannot come into God's presence with hands by the wrong things that we have done. Do you remember Shakespeare's Lady Macbeth? She helped her husband murder King Duncan in their home. And after killing, she could not quiet her guilty conscience. And her servant found her sleepwalking, convinced that her hands were stained with blood. In her sleep, she scrubbed and scrubbed and scrubbed, but she could not get the blood stain off her hands. She cried out, out, damned spot, out, I say. Why will these hands never be clean? And there's a very real sense in which Lady Macbeth's reality is our reality. Every sin we have ever done has left its stain on our hands. Everything that we have ever stolen on our sto stolen stains our hands before God. The ink of every false or cruel thing we have ever written stains our hands before God. The print of every doorknob we should not have opened is branded on our palms. Every keystroke or mouse click is tattooed on our fingertips. Every time we clicked that inappropriate image or video on our smartphone, it's stained on our hands. Our hands are stained with a lifetime of sins. And God says that those who come into his holy presence, in verse 4, must have clean hands. But it's not only pure hands that we're supposed to have. Verse 4 also tells us that we're going to have a pure heart. So it's not enough to be clean on the outside. We must be clean on the inside. 
Our thoughts and intentions and motives must be pure. We, we think, <coughs> I think about how Jesus talked to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders of his day. They thought they were, they were doing all the outward actions and that would get them to heaven, that that would get them righteousness before a holy God. And Jesus, again and again and again, he rebuked them. He corrected them, telling them to stop looking at the exterior that, that in like in Luke 6.45, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We too often want to focus on external behavior. What God wants to do is he wants to change our hearts. In fact, what does he do in the new birth? He takes our heart of stone and he, he replaces it with a new heart, with new desires and new affections for himself. That's why 2 Corinthians 5 tells us so clearly in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, that we are new creations in Christ. Our thoughts and intentions and motives must be pure. And so imagine how horrified we'd be if others could see the thoughts that flash through our minds even in the hour before we are talking about this subject. Imagine if there was a video screen in your home and every time you, you were in a room, somebody was outside and they could walk right past the door, above the door or above your workplace and they could see every thought that you were thinking. Or imagine outside of your bathroom stall that that was the same. Or outside the bathroom in your home and any of your children or family could see the thoughts that you were thinking and on and on and on outside of the door. And this will give you some of the sense of the power and force of what the psalmist is saying. And, and yet God does see each thought and that passes through our minds. He sorts through our most subtle motives. And this holy God who owns us and made us, he requires that we be pure inside. And the first two qualifications here, they focus on purity. And the third and the fourth requirements, they focus on truthfulness. Verse four, we must not lift our, our soul to what is false. This has to do with our hearts. The expression, lift up his soul, in verse 4, it means to trust in something. This is what it means at the beginning of the next psalm. In Psalm 25, 1 through 2 says, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. And so when we lift up our soul to what is false, we are trusting in a lie. But we need to ask the question, how do we trust in lies? We want something, and so we trust falsehood to get it. We want people to think that we're godly, and so we might lie about our Bible reading or our study or our knowledge. If I want a job, I'll lie on my resume. And so we, we also lie because we don't want to be punished. We don't want to be embarrassed. We trust a lie to shield us from the consequences of what we've done. Maybe, maybe it's this. I, di I didn't take that cookie from the pantry. I didn't leave the stockroom door unlocked. Or I might decide that something is so, so good that it's okay to lie to get it. You might even know Christians who have lied to get a job at a church. If you have a problem with lying, you need to realize that it starts in your heart. 
Luke 6.45 says, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you're lying, you are worshiping falsehood. You are trusting lies to do things for you when you should be worshiping God by trusting him. <coughs> the fourth qualification of our text mentions is not to swear deceitfully in verse 4. This moves our, from our heart to our, to our words. This includes our spoken words, our written words, our texted words, our email words, our social media words. God requires that those who enter his holy presence be truthful. And when we stack up our lives, if we're honest and not just check, 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 I'm good, I'm good, but actually do some examination, we would realize, all of us, that we all have problems. Who would dare to say that they don't have even the slightest stain of sin on their hands? That their thoughts are always pure, that they have never trusted a lie to protect them, that they always tell the truth. In fact, if we're honest, these requirements, they reveal our sin. And they help us to deal with it really, truthfully. They bring us an end to ourselves and they show us our sin. If we're believers, we should never allow ourselves to forget our own sinfulness and the fact that we once stood guilty before God. J.C. Ryle said this, Above all, let us pray for a deeper sense of our own sinfulness, our guilt, our undeserving. This, after all, is a true secret of a thankful spirit. It is a man who daily feels his debt to grace and daily remembers that in reality, he deserves nothing but hell. This is a man who will be daily blessing and praising God. Thankfulness is a flower which will never bloom well except upon a root of deep humility. I can tell you, as somebody who is who reads a lot of Christian books, you rarely, rare is the Christian that would write with the with the depth of honesty and biblical conviction in which I just read from Ryle. You see, Ryle is right. The more that we see the depths of our sin, the more that we'll see the heights of the, of the glory of God's love. When we know we've been forgiven much, we'll love him much. Seeing our sin should make us more grateful for the death and resurrection of Christ. You look at what some people consider the magnum opus, the very heart of the very heart of the gospel in the book of Romans. How does Romans begin? It talks about our sin. Three chapters about our sin. And Paul also gives us the gospel in the midst of giving and talking about the sinfulness of humanity. If you don't believe me, camp in those three chapters. Just read them over and over and over and over again. Study them. If you're not a Christian today, you have now heard what God requires of you. Can you say that your hands are clean and your heart is pure? God knows that you have sinned. You have broken the Ten Commandments. You have violated the holy law of God. And you stand justly accused before God like you would before a judge in courts. But this judge holds the keys to heaven and hell. 
and he will send you there if you do not repent and believe and trust in Christ alone. You might think, well, that doesn't matter. I want to tell God what I think anyway. So I'll stand before him. I'll tell him what I think. Well, we just go back a little bit to Psalm 2. Remember, God will laugh. He laughs at that. God is the one who made you, who fashioned you. He is the one who upholds this world by the word of his power. And you think that you can tell God what you're going to do? <clears throat> you think that you can live however you want to live? You think that you can spurn the requirements and the demands of God who made you, who fashioned you, who upholds you, who provides the very sustenance for your life, without which you would cease to exist for even for one second? You think that you can ignore God's requirements today, tomorrow, until the day you die, but then you'll face your maker and you need to ask, what will you do in that moment? And the answer is, if you're not a Christian and, and now that you've heard about your sin, your sin is going to keep you from your maker. Your sin is going to keep you from the Lord. And if you're, if you're hearing that and you don't know Christ, you're you're going to hear in the rest of this sermon about the Lord Jesus. We read in Scripture that Christ was the only man who completely lived up to the requirements of God's just and holy law. Verse 4, did he have clean hands, we can ask? Well, Hebrews 4.15 tells us that Christ committed no sin. Instead, his hands served us, healed us, and were pierced by his nails for you and me, pure heart. In verse 4, the Bible says in John 1.14 that Jesus was full of grace and truth. Did he trust in God? The Bible says in 1 Peter 2.23 that he entrusted himself to God. He judges justly, truthful. The Bible says in 1 Peter 2.22 that no deceit was ever found in his mouth. So Christ alone met these four requirements. And as our text promised, he received blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation, Psalm 24, 5. The resurrection was God's vindication upon the sinless perfection of the Son of God and the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. The good news of God's word is that Jesus Christ did not meet God's requirements just for himself. He came to make you qualified in the holy presence of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him he might become the righteousness of God. And although Jesus Christ was pure, he became sin for us as he carried our sin on the cross. He died and rose again so that our stained, guilty hands could be washed and our clean and our impure hearts could be purified. And so we need to ask the question, how much then does our Savior and our Creator love us? Christ came to wash us and purify us from the guilt that stains us and keeps us from coming before a God who is like a consuming fire. And when Christ purifies us, he will make us into what we should be, and what we always should be. He transforms us by the Holy Spirit into people who keep the requirements of God ourselves, men and women who are self-controlled and godly, eager to do good. And this is why 
Psalm 24, 6 says, such is a generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. And what is striking about this verse is that suddenly we're not reading about an individual anymore, but we're reading about an entire group of people. One man kept God's requirements completely and perfectly, and and an entire race of humanity was made to be like him. Charles Spurgeon, that great prince of preachers, said, Our Lord Jesus could ascend the hill of the Lord because his hands were clean and his heart was pure. And if we by faith are conformed to his image, we shall enter too. You see, we are saved through a relation with Christ that is so powerful it changes us to become like him. If today you've seen no sign, no change, no indication of spiritual growth in your life, you need to examine yourself as 2 Corinthians 13.5 tells you to see if you belong to Christ. And if not, then you need to repent and believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was made like us so that we could be made like him. This is so important today. Because you might think, well, I just walked down an aisle and I'm, I'm suddenly a Christian. I prayed the sinner's prayer, and I'm a Christian. But I ask you today, have you put your personal faith and trust in Christ? Because it's, it's Christ who takes you. Not a prayer, not walking down an aisle. It's Christ who takes you from death to life. Are you, do you love the word? Do you love the people of God? Do you love the church? Do you desire to build up and build up the church? These desires don't come from you. They come from God. And they are defined and described in the word of God. These last verses of this psalm, they take us to the gates of heaven and declare the triumph of Christ as he enters heaven itself, proving that God's requirements have been met and that he is the king of glory. And some interpreters speculate that this is an entrance liturgy used as the Ark of the Covenant was brought into the temple. But there's no mention of the Ark in these verses, and there's no evidence that the Ark was ever carried into the temple as part of a worship ceremony. Psalm 24 ends the section in the Psalms that focus on Jesus' welcome into the presence of God. Much of Psalm 24 is an echo of Psalm 15, which starts off this section. And together, Psalms 15 and 24 are like bookends for this section, the central focus of which seems to be Christ being welcomed by God into his very presence. And if we compare this with the previous section, Psalms 3 through 4, they teach us that Christ will be rejected by man. Psalms 15 through 24 teach us that he would be accepted by God. Christ is introduced as God's king in Psalm 2. The people of this world, they rage against the Lord, but God sets him on the throne of heaven. This is the gospel that that Peter announced at Pentecost in Acts 2.36. Know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom he crucified. In fact, these larger patterns in the Psalms announce the gospel in advance. We despised and we rejected him, but God honored him and rose him up. In fact, the pictures in verses 7 through 10 is Christ ascending Mount Zion, the hill of the Lord, riding up to the gates of the heavenly city as its king. And in Psalm 24, verse 7, lift up your head, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, 
if the king of glory may come in. These gates are, are being called to open to Christ as he rides in triumph. In Revelation 21, we're, we're told that there is an angel assigned to each gate of the new Jerusalem. And so, with that picture in mind, we can imagine an angel who responds, as he does in verse 8, Who is this king of glory? And the answer is shouted back in verse 8, The Lord strong and mighty in battle. How is Christ mighty in battle? Verse 8, Christ triumphed over death, hell and the grave, through the cross and the resurrection. And so he rode up to the gates of heaven as a conqueror. The battle is won. This exchange is repeated in verses 9 through 10. Why are the gates asked to lift up their heads and open a second time? Didn't they open the first time? And this could be just part of the poetry, the ceremony of the occasion, but it could be hinting that the king of glory will enter Zion twice. The first time he entered as the great king and they shout out that he himself is mighty in battle and he defeated his enemies by the cross. But notice that the answer in verse 10 is different from verse 8. <coughs> they shout back the second time. The Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. The hosts are his army. And so this seems to give us a picture of Jesus as a great king with rank upon rank of warriors behind him. This second shout in verse 10 identifies him at the front of his people. In fact, Revelation 19.4, we read this description of Jesus at the end of time. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And so this second shout seems to be hinting that our king will ride up to the gates of Zion, the heavenly city, a second time with his hosts, a crowd of the saints following victorious in battle. And when Christ calls us home, he will return to heaven as the Lord of hosts with crowds of us following him. Will you be in that great crowd? Do you do what God asks of you? Do you know that you can never live up to the standard of God? Do you know for sure that your stained hands have been washed clean, your heart has been purified, and you are living a new life in Christ? Do you know that your Creator cares for you, even if you have, have given yourself to some of the worst things that this world has, has to offer? He knows you are not fit for heaven now, and so His Son made the way for you. Won't you come to Him today? Repent and believe on Christ. If you know Christ, you will be part of the crowd that follows the Lord. God's word says so, and Christ himself, your king, will lead you in victory along with those who have gone before you. Who is this king of glory? Do we believe this today? And do you believe that the Lord is worthy of all glory? Do you believe that in and of himself he is sufficient? Do you believe that this world was made by God? And that you are made by God and you are owned by God? And that the only proper response is not to, not to thumb your nose at God, but to believe God. To take him at his word. That's why, the, that's why the very first question and answer in the Heidelberg Catechism, that the only comfort in life and death is found in God. It's a beautiful thing. 
the only comfort for us is in God himself. What we need the most is God. God is the one who made us. He fashioned us, Psalm 139 tells us, in our mother's womb. He upholds the world by the word of his power. He is a treasure. All of the promises of God, 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, find their yes in a man in Christ alone. You might be going on a, on a journey today. You might go for a walk. I want you on that walk or maybe on that ride, that drive to work or wherever you are. I want you to think, what are you glorying in the most in your life? Where is the direction of your life headed in the next hour, in the next day, in the next week, in the next month, in the next year, in the next five years, in the next 10 years, in the next 20 years, in the next 30 years? Where is your life headed? Where's the direction? Where's the trajectory? Are you glorying? In the Lord? Or are you glorying in yourself? Are you glorying in, in your knowledge of sports? In your enjoyment of sports? In your enjoyment of your hobbies, whatever they are? Are you glorying in your knowledge of various topics and so on, even of theology in the Bible? Yeah, you can do that. Only all you have to do is read the Gospels to see that. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, thought they were so right, and yet they missed the point. They missed the Messiah who would come, as Isaiah 53 says, to pay for their sins in their place. This is why at the very end of his, of his epistle, John says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Because an idol is a thing in our lives that we attach value to, attach worth to. It's a thing that we're treasuring in. It's a thing that we're glorying in. More than God himself. This is why Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks in Luke 6.45. And it's a question that we need to ask because it's the question that the psalmist asked in this passage. What does God require of me? Since God exists and he does and heaven is real, what are you going to do to get there? Are you going to get there by your own way? Are you by your own merit, by your own treasure, by your own money, by your own knowledge? Go ahead. Throw all your gold, throw all of your money, throw all your 401k, throw all of your stock options, throw your 401k at it. Go ahead. You'll never get there in a million years, in a billion years, in a trillion years. You will never make it to God that way. And that's the scandal of the gospel, by the way. This is why Jesus had to come under the sentence of death to pay the penalty that you and I justly deserve. It was not about us. It was first and foremost about God. 
God had to come into our time and space. In fact, this is why, this is why, friends, that the very design, the very purpose of the incarnation was the death of Christ. This sinless substitute who would pay the penalty for us that we justly deserve. We don't deserve the gift of the righteousness of God. And yet God, in his grace and in his mercy, came to be, to be beaten and mocked and scourged and rejected by the very men and the women that he made in his image and his likeness. People today think, I'm a good person. I'm going to make it into heaven because I'm good. And this psalmist would say, no. Do you have clean hands? Do you have a pure heart? You're not a good person. By good person, do you mean that I'm sinless? Because you're not. We're sinners by nature and by choice in need of a Savior who alone can save. You might think, well, I'm a Christian. Great. Martin Luther had a great phrase, simul justice el pactor. At the same time, sinner and saint, even as a Christian, you face, you must face, as Ryle said earlier, you must face your remaining and indwelling sin. You must see yourself in need of a Savior who alone can save you. Otherwise, you know what the temptation is? This is the temptation. It's going to be all about me. It's all going to be about my performance. So I got to do a little bit more to please God. Because God isn't pleased with me. So I got to, I got to batten down the hatches. I got to put all up my bootstraps. So many Christians live this way. And it is exhausting to live your Christian life this way. And let me say this. It also dishonors your Lord who saved you to live that way. Because it spits in the face of the one who came under the sentence of death to pay the penalty for you in your place and what you're doing when you live by your performance. You're living for yourself. You're trusting in yourself. You're trusting that you in and of yourself and your ability and your ways can make it to God. How foolish. You didn't save yourself. Christ came under the sentence of death to pay the penalty that you justly deserve so that you could be forgiven and adopted and loved by God because of Christ. You see, without Christ, with, without what he did for us, there's no way for us to have clean hands and a pure heart. But because of Christ, because of what he's done, he's declared us not guilty to those who come and repent and believe and trust in Christ alone. He forgives them. He pardons them. He takes them from 
the kingdom of darkness, as Colossians 1 says, to the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. Dear Christian, you want to have you want to have a hope that you can cling to? You want to have a, a faith and a, and a confidence in the midst of unchanging times? You have it already. Cling to Christ. Your Savior, your King, is sufficient in every single way. He's sufficient to save you. He's sufficient to send the Holy Spirit to indwell you to equip you, to send you out on mission. He's sufficient in and of himself because he is your sufficient intercessor. He's a sufficient high priest. He is sufficient in every aspect of his person, in every aspect of his work. Christ is sufficient. And so as we end, I have to ask you the question. Today, what are you glorying in? Are you going to glory in the king of glory, where your treasure is, where your life is hidden, as Paul says in Colossians 3, with Christ and God? Or are you going to glory in yourself? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that only, only because of Christ, only because of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus can we stand. There's none that can stand apart from the righteousness of Christ, not the wealthiest man, not the, not the greatest man, not the greatest political figure of our age, not the most influential person of our age. We stand because of the righteousness of Christ, imputed to us by faith and the perfection personified of the God-man, Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, we, we, we are so thankful, so thankful that we have another. We have a righteous, holy, perfect, spotless, blameless king we are so thankful that you are our king. Help us, Lord, to treasure you, to glory only in you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.